Morning, church. Good to see you. We are going to be in Luke chapter 20, and happy Father's Day to the dads who are here, to the men. And uh, it's been kind of a great Father's Day for me. I have two more kids than I had uh, at Father's Day last year. So my, uh, my two sons married two pretty great young ladies. And uh, Cameron, I, my newest daughter-in-law, was in our first service, and Megan's right over here, and uh, pretty blessed. So we're done now. All right, I'm topping out at six. So uh, happy Father's Day to uh, you, and uh, let's get into God's Word. We're in our series in Luke's Gospel, and we're going to finish up chapter 20 today, 27 to 47, are the verses we're going to look at, and I want to talk about skeptics. A skeptic is a person who's inclined to question or doubt all accepted opinions, and uh, you might be a skeptic uh, at heart. Uh, skeptics are um, kind of people that would consider skepticism to be like um, a hobby to them. It might, they might even consider it like a job or their MO. Some skeptics disagree just to disagree. They push back for sport. They like fulfilling the rebel role and being the contrarian and playing the devil's advocate. And when a skeptic, a person like that, comes across a person like us, and by that I mean people of faith who have deeply held convictions about God and about uh, this world, it can make for very interesting discussions and also provide us opportunities to speak for Christ and to perhaps even lead someone uh, to Christ. And some Christians, now even talking about that, answering questions about the faith to skeptics, that can strike fear in the hearts of a lot of believers. But there are some among us who are really wired up for this and who really do love answering questions and, um, and, and dealing with objections to the faith. And these believers among us would be into what we call the discipline of apologetics. And I want to define that. Apologetics is really a branch of theology that is concerned with reasoned arguments in defense of the faith. That's what apologetics is. It's related to our word apology, but it's come to mean, uh, apology has come to mean something different. If you go back to the original Greek word, apologia, uh, it means making a reasonable defense. And the word was most often used in courtrooms to, dis- to describe what the defense attorney would do in defending a client. And so that's what apologia is. And so for us, it's really just a series of defenses of our faith, speaking in defense of our faith. And so apologetics very directly deals with skeptics and their objections to what we believe. Now, I tell you all of that and set that all up because In this week's passage we're going to look at in Luke 20, Jesus is encountering once again a group of religious leaders who this time, unlike the Pharisees, uh, who believe some things very, very deeply and in many ways would have been similar to the things that Jesus and the disciples would have believed and similar to the things we believe, these Sadducees who have the discussion with Jesus are actually religious skeptics. And this is going to help us as we see the conversation, really what we're going to lay out is a pattern or a model for dealing with skeptics in our own life. We're going to see the way that Jesus uh, dealt with these skeptics and answered their questions. It's going to help us in our own conversations with people who do not know Jesus, but who raise really good questions. They don't have to be full-blown skeptics. It can just be people in our life who don't believe, but who want to know 
and want to ask their questions about the faith. And so we're going to read the passage instead of reading it all at once at the start. We're going to read the passage as we go here. And here's the big idea for today. When answering a skeptic's questions about the faith, that's what we're going after. First, let's understand where they're coming from. Let's start with the first few verses here. This is uh, verse 27 of Luke 20. There came to him, there came to Jesus, some Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection. They asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, let's, uh, we'll deal with the question in a few moments, but uh, let's deal with the Sadducees themselves. We want to understand who these skeptics are. And uh, Jesus is confronted this time by religious leaders who are theologically liberal. These uh, Sadducees were an aristocratic, wealthy class of priests uh, they were culturally Hellenistic, that is that they had adopted the more Greek culture around them. They used the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And among the things that they believed, and I'm going to frame this up in terms of what they rejected, uh, four principal things. We can see in the text they rejected the resurrection. In fact, they rejected beyond that any concept of life after death. They rejected the existence of angels and demons. And they rejected the Bible, most of the Bible. We're talking about the Old Testament. They rejected most of it. The only part they really believed and adhered to was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And so they had selected out the part of the Bible that kind of fit with where they were, but rejected all the rest. By the way, that's a really common thing today where people who are calling themselves Christians are kind of uh, picking and choosing their way through the Bible and not accepting the entire Bible as the authoritative uh, word of God. So uh, whatever's going on today, that's not really a new thing. That's been happening for quite some time where people just kind of pick out the parts of the Bible that are comfortable to them and the rest they reject. And so we have these Sadducees. Here what they, here's what they believe. Here's who they are. This is who Jesus is, is talking to. And in contrast to the Pharisees who we, we've seen throughout uh, the gospel, in fact, this is the only time in Luke's gospel where we see the Sadducees at all. In contrast to the Pharisees, I mean, these two groups had a very historic rivalry with one another because one group theologically liberal, the other group theologically conservative. And so there was this rivalry between them in terms of what they believed. And in essence, what we have with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there was a third group who we're not going to talk about called the Essenes, really what they are, are denominations within first century Judaism. Okay, they're, they're, they're denominations. And we can understand that because if there's one thing that Protestants have very, been very good at, well, I would just call it our best thing is creating new denominations. We've been awesome at splitting and starting new things in the historic Protestant church. And so as we try to understand, again, Pharisees and Sadducees, we would understand this in terms of within Protestant Christianity, you have both liberal and conservative. You would have conservative evangelicals, 
That would be us. And then you would have liberal, more liberal mainline uh, churches, and that would be more like the Sadducees. And so we would more closely identify with the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a high view of Scripture. They believed the Bible. They believed in miracles. They believed in the resurrection. They had faith. They had a high priority on worship. That sounds an awful lot like us, so we would more closely identify with the Pharisees. Whereas, and I don't mean to be offensive or anything, but this is just the reality of it, and they would admit it freely, the Sadducees would be more like the United Church down the road uh, that has uh, a very low view of Scripture, doesn't believe in, uh, many United Church ministers would not believe in the resurrection, and would have a very liberal slant on all of our theology. And so that gives you a picture of what's going on here and who the Sadducees actually are. And when you understand that about the Sadducees, who they are in terms of what they believe and who they, who they actually are, it really explains this crazy hypothetical question that they put in front of Jesus, this question about marriage and, and heaven, which we're going to get to that in, again, just in a few moments. The point of this starting point is simply this, we have to understand and be sympathetic toward the person that's asking the question. We have to know who the skeptic is and where they're coming from. Because skeptics today come from all different backgrounds. So you have skeptics today that are non-religious, were not raised in the church and have, have uh, no frame of reference at all when it comes to religion. You have skeptics today who have uh, huge religious backgrounds, were raised in it. Today's skeptics are, are uh, often uh, highly educated. Today's skeptics uh, in Canada are highly suspicious of institutions and, and particularly religious institutions. They're suspicious of, of church leaders, of spiritual leaders and pastors. And sometimes those suspicions are born out of deep personal hurt that's happened to them. Sometimes those skeptics are former church kids and former pastor's kids. And many, many of them have been wounded deeply by things that have happened in the church. And when you understand that, when you can get behind the question to see the person, and you begin to have a greater heart and greater empathy, and it'll motivate you to answer the question in a certain way with a certain tone. We can't simply dismiss the questions of skeptics. We can't dismiss their concerns about the faith because when we do, we're dismissing the person. We're dismissing their experience. And Jesus never dismissed people, not like that. He answered the question. He reasoned with people and he sought to bring them to an understanding of who he was and of the faith. And we need to do that as best we're able, as fearful as we might be in the face of answering a critic's question. We have to do it as best we're able, and we start by understanding where the person is coming from. And then once we've got that, we can go ahead and answer the initial question that they ask. Answer the initial question, and in verse 34, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So he's answering the question about marriage, which is the question they fronted. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So the question that 
that the um, Sadducees have asked, it was actually based on some Old Testament teaching. And again, remember, the first five books of Moses are really the thing for them. And so that's where the question's coming out. If, if, if you want to chase this down later, Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 is where the teaching is taught, uh, the, what they're leaning on here. And then Genesis 38, 8 uh, gives an example of that. So in their, you remember in their question, it's, it's about a husband uh, who dies, but he's never fathered any kids. And um, it's kind of a weird Father's Day message in a, in a way, isn't it? So, so he, he never fathers any kids, and then it gets worse because um, in the law, what they would do is that the next brother would marry his brother's wife, the widow, and father children really on his behalf. And part of that was if the woman was a widow and didn't have any kids, she literally had no standing in the community. She would be pushed to the margins as a widow. No one would care for her. She, she'd have no wealth and nothing to lean on for the rest of her life. So that's a tough spot to be in. So the law made provision for that. Now, this happens like seven times. This is, again, a hypothetical situation. It happens seven times. I'm thinking, poor woman, right? She's got to marry seven brothers. And some of you are sitting right here going like, I would not want to marry my brother-in-law. Not at all, right? And, and so, um, but that was what the law made provision for. And so in this example, all seven marry her, all seven uh, die before they produce any uh, children at all. So the question comes then, because they're wondering about heaven, which they don't believe in, okay, they're wondering, who's she going to be married to in heaven, which one of these seven guys? Now, this is a skeptic's question because what it's seeking to do is kind of upset the thing we believe by presenting an inconsistency. They're trying to say that, that your belief is illogical based on you say you believe this, you say you believe this, but when these two things meet, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so we have this... Um, this question that's very similar to the kinds of questions that we deal with today. And in fact, there's a whole category of questions that we would call the omnipotence paradox. Now tell me that maybe you didn't hear this question when you were, um, when you were in high school. This is the first time I ever heard it. But the omnipotence paradox question is this. Can God create a stone that's too heavy for him to lift? How many people have heard that question before? Yeah, so again, the first time I heard it was when I was in high school and I was a brand new believer. Can God create a stone so heavy that he cannot lift? So it's taking the doctrine of the omnipotence of God. God is all-powerful, and it's trying to present an illogical conclusion to it, a conflict in the belief. So obviously God is all-powerful. He can create a stone any size he wants. But could he then, in his power, create one that he couldn't actually lift? Now, the problem with the question, and you can read a lot about how to handle these kinds of paradoxes that are put in front of us, the problem is it violates, the question itself is illogical, not where it goes. The question itself is illogical because it ignores the fact that God would never act in his character outside of his character. He can't act outside his moral will. And so his power, he even limits his own power to the confines of his own moral will. And so it's illogical on its face, the question, just as this question that the Sadducees have put in front of Jesus misunderstands the nature of marriage. And so what I want to do right now is I actually want to dive into that. So we answer that question and we see how Jesus answers it logically. 
Jesus is going to answer the question, and then we'll get back into the message in terms of building our model for answering questions. And so Jesus goes on to say, there is no marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. So I'm going to borrow here from Robert Stein, who's one of the commentators that I'm using uh, for this series. And here's what Robert Stein says about Jesus' answer. Marriage is not an eternal fixture in God's creative purpose. It came into being at a point in time, and it will cease when time as we know it ceases to be. The need of marriage to fill the earth will be passed, and the need for procreation ended. The need for companionship, which marriage was meant to to fill, will no longer be needed. For that will be met by God himself and the family of believers. No marriage in heaven. Right? It's like a bomb just went off. Okay? And, and, and this can be troubling to certain people who have had long marriages and awesome marriages. And you spend a whole lifetime together and, 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 and you can't imagine now that there's not going to be any marriage beyond this life. Some of you, some in this room, have already said goodbye to their spouse. And, and the thing that happens, and I've done lots and lots of funerals, and you hear, I just can't wait to get to heaven to see my husband, to see my wife again. And I understand that. And in our grief, we say that. But honestly, when you get to heaven, the first thought is not going to be, where's my former spouse? It's going to be, where's Jesus? It's going to be, I got to get in front of the Lord. And... And there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus already said it. You know, I've been married to Cheryl for 28 years. I, I, uh, I have a great marriage. I mean, I just have an awesome marriage in every way. I checked with her. She said it's true. <laughs> I checked with her in the service. I know I put her on the spot at the time too. But um, though, honestly, we have a great marriage. And I, I, I can't imagine anybody could have a marriage better than the one I have, honestly. And I think about this, and as I've watched people that have been married for 50 and 60 years, and I see the depth of their relationship, and I I wonder that if God is kind enough to give um, me and Cheryl another 28 years, that I I know we're just going to get to a point, and maybe we're already there, where I just can't even imagine life without her. And I know that the longer you're married and the deeper the relationship is, the harder and harder and harder it gets to imagine life without that person. And so it's difficult for us as human beings to imagine that in heaven there could be something even better than that. See, but that's the thing that Jesus is telling us. In fact, when we think about heaven, and we limit ourselves so much, but when we think about heaven, we fail to appreciate just how awesome it's really going to be. You look in the scriptures and the, and the, the descriptions that we have from those who were given a glimpse of heaven. And they went to heaven, they got these visions. I'm thinking about Paul and Isaiah in particular, and John. And they came back and they struggled to use the words that were available to them to even describe what they had seen. They were so overwhelmed with the picture of what heaven was like. They used metaphors to try and describe it. And we look at the metaphors and go, I have no idea what this means. In other words, heaven is so awesome and so beyond human comprehension to really appreciate. And when you take the most precious, most intimate, best relationship we'll ever have on this planet, the one that God gives us in marriage, the one he ordained for us, 
And when it's really super awesome, and I know that's not everybody's experience, but when it really is, it's hard to imagine that God's going to do something way beyond that. But this is exactly what he's going to do. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's God creating something, building something that's so far beyond. I, I, can't, I can't see it with my eyes. I can't, I can't imagine what it sounds like. I can't figure it out in my own heart. It's so far beyond. In fact, that's the way Stein finishes up. He says this, if anything good in this age is not carried over into the age to come, it's because it's going to be replaced by something far, far better. So that's Jesus' answer about marriage. That's the initial question that they have. And that's, I think you would agree with me. That's an awesome answer. There's no marriage in heaven. There's something better. So set that aside now. We come back to the point, what we're looking at in this passage. If you engage in conversations about your faith, you're going to face questions like that, that, that you're going to have answers for, that you're going to be able to meet the objections. You're going to be able to discuss the skeptics' inquiries about the faith. And here are some of the questions that maybe you've already faced. Maybe you've heard these questions before. But here's some sample skeptics questions. Why does a good God allow evil to exist? How many people have ever been asked that question before? Why does a good God allow evil to exist? And there's plenty of examples for them to use as they ask their question. Were the biblical miracles just magic tricks which fooled the simple primitive people? Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Again, how many people have heard this one? Isn't the Bible full of... No, it is not. It is not. And there's a great answer for that question. What about those who have never heard about Jesus? Do they go to hell? Tough question. How, how do you know God exists? Why is Jesus the only way to God? Now, every one of those questions, all six of them come from a website, a josh.org, which is the website of Josh McDowell, who for a generation now has been a great apologist in the church. And I'll talk more about him uh, toward the end, um, I'm going to point to some resources by the end of this message uh, that you can use to track down the answers. And the thing is that it's not just about getting an answer for an objection that some skeptic is asking you, but it's about building your own faith. And if you chase this down a little bit yourself and study it out, I know it's going to bring greater confidence to what you uh, believe. All right, let's move on. They've asked a question about, about marriage. Okay, it's, it's, really a question about heaven, but they don't believe in it. And, and when you answer the skeptic's initial question with respect, it's going to give you an opportunity to get a little deeper into what the real question is. What are you really asking? Because it's not about marriage in heaven. And the, the, the deeper question that you want to get to is this one. How is a person saved? How does a person get into a relationship with God? This is exactly what Jesus does then, picking up at verse 37, but that, but that the dead are raised. He's coming back to a thing they don't believe in, but this has been kind of like the behind question that they've asked. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. 
Now, the resurrection, again, we've already been told that they don't believe in it, but the resurrection now takes center stage because Jesus takes it there. And the distinction's already been made. Jesus is treating these Sadducees like they are not believers. And he's going to share with them the very central core of what we need to believe in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ, because this is going to be a major obstacle for them. Remember, he talked about in verse 35, those who are considered worthy in the answer about marriage, he's talking about those who are considered worthy. In other words, those who have been made worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ, those who are genuine believers who trust in God and follow him, those are the ones who are going to heaven in contrast to those who are not considered worthy because they've not received the power of the resurrection to be saved. And so Jesus answers them, and he's going to lay out a series of arguments now, and he's going to start with what he calls the passage about the bush. Now, no chapter and verse numbers existed in the Old Testament at the time of Jesus. In fact, chapters and verses, chapter and verse numbers didn't come into play until the 1500s in the entire Bible, and so you needed to refer to passages in terms of what the story was. And so when Jesus talks about the passage about the bush, he's talking about Exodus chapter 3, that time when Moses met with God, or God met with Moses, the burning bush, and Moses was called to go and lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so in that encounter, Moses is out in the pasture land, the bush is burning, he stops dead there, the Lord starts speaking to him and says, introduces himself, he says, I am, I am the God of Abraham, uh, the God of um, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. You see, Abraham was long dead by the time Moses was having this encounter with God, as was his son Isaac, as was his grandson Jacob. They were long dead, hundreds of years before. Their earthly lives had ended. And so if he was rightly saying that they had just died and were dead the way the Sadducees believed, then he would say, I was the God of Abraham. But instead he uses the present tense to say, I am still Abraham's God. And the reason why I'm still his God is because Abraham's still alive. His earthly life ended, but his spiritual life continued. And he is with the Lord, like all of us now, awaiting the final resurrection from the dead to eternal life. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 38. This is his commentary on that. Speaking of God, he says, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Now, why is this all important? Because this is the resurrection we're talking about. The key fault in what the Sadducees believed was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. And you can't claim to be religious in any way or have a relationship with God and not believe in the resurrection. You can't claim to be a Christian and have any assurance of heaven if you reject the core of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, the apostle Paul wrote about this. And when you start to think about apologetic arguments, the defense of the faith, and particularly when it comes to the resurrection, the Apostle Paul already wrote this all down. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll look at this passage. Here it is. This is what he says. The Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay? I preached to you. I taught you what was taught to me. I'm now teaching this to you. And it is of utmost top priority importance in our lives. This is the core of the thing that we believe. And then he goes on to articulate the gospel. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So there is no Christianity, there is no salvation, there is no point to any of this if there's no resurrection. And he argues this like an apologist, like, like he's making a defense for the faith because he's dealing with skeptics. He goes on to say this. Uh, this is again 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20. He says, now, if, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, listen, he's hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and the Sadducees. He's ministering in the city. He's writing a letter to the people who are in the city in Corinth, which is in Greece. And evidently, there were some people in this church in Corinth who had now become theological liberals like the Sadducees and who were no longer believing in the resurrection from the dead. So, so Paul's writing to them to address their objections, their skepticism about the resurrection. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, follow his argument now, not even Christ has been raised. I mean, if we're not rising from the dead, then the whole thing about Jesus is bogus. And if Christ hasn't been raised, building on the argument now, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I mean, this whole thing that we're doing is just flat out ridiculous. But did you check the weather before you came in? It's a beautiful day. We live in a waterfront community. And it's absolutely ridiculous. If there's no resurrection, absolutely ridiculous that you're in here today. I mean, it is stupid, stupid, stupid. For goodness sake, if there's no resurrection, go to the beach. <laughs> Why come inside a windowless room? The preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. Your faith that you claim to have apart from the resurrection is ridiculous and useless. He goes on to say, we might even be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Well, then he goes on to say, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, there's no resurrection. We're not going anywhere. There's no heaven. We're just doing this because, you know, um, it's nice to be a nice person. And, and the Christian life is nice. And we're nice people. And the city of Barrie's lucky to have us. Why don't you laugh at that? They are. Because we, we, we tend to be people who work on our marriages and, and, and we care for our kids and we, and we contribute to the community and we're generous and we're nice moral people. And I mean, you know, we, we uphold the law more than others would. I mean, we're great people to have in a city. But if that's all there is, is what Paul's saying. I mean, if the only thing we're doing here is just trying to be nice moral people because we don't actually believe in the resurrection, then listen, what does he say? If we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. It's pitiful what you're doing. 
For goodness sake, if there's no resurrection, go out and party and live up life and be a little more selfish. Is that what he's saying? It's pitiful to live like this when you could be taking more for yourself. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? Amen, he has. And the evidence, the evidence for the resurrection, which we can't go into in this message, but I'll point you to some resources. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. And when a skeptic truly examines the evidence, if they do not resist it and harden their heart, they will see the validity, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe it. Now, Jesus has answered their initial question. He's answered what I call the real question. Now, listen, he's going to answer the real, real question. Okay, we're really getting after it. And he's now going to start asking questions of them to get at what we're calling here. We're going to address the unstated concern they have about Jesus himself. Now, picking up at verse 41, but he said to them, this is Jesus said to them, how can they say that that the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son. How can they say that? Because David, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So again, Jesus is presenting a very, or, uh, yeah, Jesus is presenting a very logical argument here. He first asks a rhetorical question, verse 41, about the Messiah being a descendant of David. And then he cites Psalm 110, verse 1, and the fact that David calls him Lord. How could David do that? How could David, who is the greatest king of Israel in their history, how could David look down the generations to one of his distant, distant sons and call that son Lord? Doesn't happen that way. Okay, again, wonderful Father's Day message. Sons always call their dads Lord, okay? The, the, the respect and esteem goes this way through history back to the ancestor, back to the patriarch, not to the son. There's no dad calling his son Lord. And yet that's exactly what David is doing here. When you unpack verse 42, here's what it says. Again, this is from Psalm 110. The Lord, and when you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find out that this word for Lord is, the, is the, the proper name for God. This is Yahweh. So this is God, okay? The Lord, God, Yahweh, said to my Lord, David is speaking this, God said to my Lord, God said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Bypassing David entirely, the greatest king of Israel, to go to the Messiah and say to the Messiah, Messiah, son, you get to sit at the right hand. You're the one who is co-equal to God. You are the one who co-rules in eternity, not David. And so David calls Jesus Lord. He calls the Messiah Lord. Though the Messiah is a descendant of David, he's greater than David. He's David's Lord. He's David's Savior. He's David's God. Now, this, of course, speaks to so many things. The incarnation, the God-man, Jesus being fully God and fully man, the very nature of who Jesus Christ is himself. And with each part of this conversation, as Jesus keeps taking it step by step, he's mining deeper and deeper into the real issue, the unstated concern that they have. 
It's not about marriage. It's not about marriage in heaven. It's not about the resurrection, really. It's not about the way that you get into a relationship with God. It really comes down to one thing. It comes down to the person of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, he's standing right in front of them. They're asking questions of him. He's asking questions of them. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like what he represents. They don't like the things that he's been doing. At the end of the day, and you've heard me say this before, Jesus is the problem. Jesus is the problem. I don't know if you like that phrasing or not, but the way the Bible says it is that Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. This is the thing that's going to crush people. This is the thing that, that, that's going to fall on top of people and people are going to trip over. Jesus is the problem for every single human being and we either bow our knee to honor him and receive him as Lord and Savior, or he crushes us. That's still true today, the nature of Jesus, who he is. This is the thing that continues to, in our culture today, Jesus fascinates people and aggravates them. He does both. He fascinates the world around us today, as secular as the world is today, they still can't shake the fact that they're fascinated by him. In fact, just look at this. I just was thinking about just magazine covers that have had Jesus on the cover. They can't stop it. Time magazine alone, a dozen or more times, Jesus has been on the cover. Every kind of magazine you can imagine just wants to study Jesus and talk about him. Movies that have been made about Jesus. Jesus who appears in all kinds of songs. Not Christian songs, just songs. Jesus is fascinating to the world, but he's also extremely aggravating. People may not like Jesus. People may not want to believe in Jesus. But people can't shake Jesus. They know that when it comes to what we believe, when it comes to getting into a relationship with God, whether they agree with it or not, the question is always, what will you do with Jesus? And so, once the skeptic you're talking to asks the initial question, and you get to it, and then you get to the real question, and then the real, real question, and then the real, real, real question, it always comes to Jesus. And that leads us to this. This is the real, 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 real issue. People don't want to change. The real issue is that people have an unwillingness to change their way of living. And Jesus calls this out in verses 45 through 47. In the hearing of all the people, okay, so he's answered the question, He's asked them a question. In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes, these are the teachers of the law, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
Those who reject Jesus Christ in the only way of salvation, we're talking about receiving new life through the power of the resurrection, they find themselves receiving this greater condemnation. And this isn't reserved just for these teachers of the law, these scribes, but this is anyone who rejects Jesus. There's going to be an eternal separation from God. You won't receive the new life if you don't believe in the resurrection. And the characteristics of these scribes, Jesus kind of lays it out for us in a number of statements here about them, but I've broken it down into four categories if you're taking notes. The first category is pride. They love their popularity. They love the acceptance and the esteem and the respect and the status that they have in front of the people. And pride will keep you 100% away from God. It'll keep you away from God. You can't think that you're all that and then surrender your life to follow him. Pride's the first one. The second one is power, privilege, influence, recognition, authority over people. And these Sadducees were part of the whole religious establishment. And because they were aristocrats, their money was tied in, their wealth was tied into with, with, with um, maintaining power in their society. And Jesus was threatening all of that. So they're just thinking about their power. They don't want to change. They don't want anything to change because if it changes, they're going to lose their authority. Thirdly, I put down greed, selfishness, hoarding, coveting. I mean, this went so far for the scribes that Jesus is talking about here, these religious leaders, and not only did they not care for the widows and the orphans and the people on the margins, but he actually says in verse 47 that they devour widows' houses. Not only just ignoring the people on the margins, they're exploiting them. They're taking an advantage of people who are already disadvantaged. And then um, this last one, pride, power, greed, and religiosity. Religiosity is thinking that you're okay with God on the basis of your own criteria, not God's. It's very fashionable today. Jesus said it this way for these guys in verse 47, um, that they, um, for a pretense, um, spoke long prayers. Look how religious I am. I'm a very religious person. Listen to my very long prayer. It's a pretentious prayer. That's the word that's used there. Pretentious simply means they're pretending. No substance behind it, just pretending to be something that they are not. Pretending that they are in a right relationship with God and they are not. And again, this is very common today. And, and I would just say about this, you don't have to have all four of those things, pride, power, greed, religiosity. You don't have to have all four of those to not be in a, in a bad place with God. Just one of those would be enough if it's unrepented of. If you have no desire to change it, if it's the thing that stands between you and a relationship with Christ, one of those is enough. Because at the end of the day, the message that's preached to us, John the Baptist started with this as a, as a precursor to Christ's coming, then Jesus preached this, and then the apostles picked this up after the ascension. They all preached, if you, if you could boil down their messages to like one word, it would be the word repent. Repentance is simply, I agree with God, and I'm going to change my way of doing things to His. The key word is change. I'm going to change. That's what we see in some of the people in Luke's gospel who changed. They repented. 
Zacchaeus, back in chapter 19, you'll recall that he wanted to see Jesus, and he wasn't quite there yet, but he wanted to hear his teaching. He wanted to see what this was all about, and then, and then he received Jesus joyfully, and radical changes happened in his life immediately. His life was completely altered as a result of his faith in Christ. And I just think like more people would be more willing to embrace Christ if they could do it on their own terms, if it didn't require so much change, so much repentance, if it didn't mean following him no matter what, if it didn't mean admitting sin. Some, some Christian, I'm going to put that in quotes, some Christian expressions of the faith, some Christians in quotes, have stripped Jesus down to just the nice parts, just the easy parts, so they can say they believe in Jesus, but really it's just for a pretense, it's just pretending. They don't want the hard parts of what he said. They don't want to repent, they don't want to change. This is why the rich ruler, you remember back in Luke 18, when presented with what it would mean for him to follow Jesus, Jesus said to him, listen, the problem is that you're too tied to your riches, so you need to go and sell everything that you have, and you need to come and follow me. And he was very wealthy, and, and the scriptures say in Luke 18, he, he walked away sad. And many skeptics will walk away sad on this point. If you can get to this point, and it all comes down to there's some things in your life that aren't working, and you're going to need to repent and follow Jesus Christ, and it's going to mean massive changes for you. That's where some will turn their backs and walk away sad because they just can't get there. They don't want anything about their life to change. And, and this would all be so disheartening because I think we have it in our minds that very few skeptics are ever going to come to faith in Christ. And yet there are people here in this room who were skeptical of Jesus and who came to faith in Christ. So we need to do everything that we've said here. We need to walk through this whole process and get to the real, 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 real question that people are asking. And we need to keep in mind that even skeptics can be saved. Do you believe that? Even skeptics can be saved. I mean, sometimes skeptics are trying to throw us off our game or they have no intention of ever believing what we believe. But there are those who are inquiring with a searching heart and mind, and sometimes it's very difficult to tell the difference. And you can't treat all skeptics the same. There are some who are genuinely seeking the truth. There are some who, who genuinely know in asking a very difficult question of you, they genuinely know that their thing is not working. They might not be willing to admit it in the moment, but the reason why they're asking you the question is because they've seen something in you that's caught their eye and because they want to know if the thing you have is real. They want to find out if the thing that you have is something you really dearly believe. That's why we answer the question. That's why, if we're able, we probe even a little more deeply into it. And in the process of all of this, the thing that we cannot discount is the work of the Holy Spirit in the person's life. 100% of the time, people get saved by the power of the Holy Spirit drawing them to Christ. 100% of the time. There's not a person in this room who's genuinely saved who is not saved because the Holy Spirit prompted you to be saved. If left to ourselves apart from the Holy Spirit's work, every single one of us would turn away from God 
and would refuse to follow him. It's the Spirit's work that saves us and seals us. And that's the thing. We can't see the Spirit working. When the skeptic's asking their question, they may be coming at us angry or hard. We may not be able to see what the Spirit is doing, but we need to believe that he's working. Now look back at verse 39 and see this, because we kind of just kind of ran over it and didn't notice that some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well. Now, just back a few verses in chapter uh, 20, verse 21, in the last message we talked about, there were those spies that came to Jesus and they were all so filled with empty flattery and they were trying to butter him up and, and kind of position him for the question they were going to ask him. This is not empty flattery. This is not like that was. This is a genuine compliment. This is, wow, we're really thinking about the things that you've just said to us. Some of the scribes, we're being impacted by the things Jesus was saying. And as much as the religious leaders have acted as the foil to everything Jesus has been doing in the gospels, some of them turned to him in faith, believing the gospel. In fact, if you go beyond the day uh, of ascension and the apostolic ministry, you go to Acts chapter 6, and this is what we see going on in Acts 6. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Notice, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Priests. Some of them might have been Pharisees that were pressing them on questions. Some of them might have been Sadducees who didn't even believe in a resurrection at the time. Some of them might have been right there asking him the question about marriage in heaven. Many of them believed even skeptics can be saved. I mentioned Josh McDowell earlier, and I want to introduce you to two men here, Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel. And for those of you who have been followers of Christ for a long time, maybe you know both of these names. And uh, both of them have, are writers in the area of apologetics and, um, but both of them started out as skeptics, unbelievers in their 20s. Lee Strobel was a journalist. Josh McDowell was in university studying. And uh, both of them went on a very similar journey in that both of them set out to research the evidence and disprove Christianity. McDowell would describe himself, I believe, as an agnostic. Uh, there could be a God, but we can't know him. Lee Strobel was a, an avowed atheist, believing that there was no God. Both of them set out to disprove it. And in the course of pursuing the evidence and tracking it all down, both Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel gave their lives to Jesus Christ, being absolutely convinced by the evidence that they had chased down. And now both of these men have spent their lives helping us, the church, to be able to answer those very difficult questions that get asked. And so we're grateful to them as stalwarts of the faith, as men who have poured themselves into giving us the answers to push deeper into the real issues that are in a skeptic's heart so that we can work, if I can put it this way, so we can work from the outside in and then see the Holy Spirit do a work from the inside out to bring a person to faith in Christ and convinced about all of this. And this is so important because in the day that we currently live in, skepticism in who we are and what we believe is so high. Skepticism in the Bible, skepticism of faith, skepticism of Jesus, of, the, of, of, of churches, and what we're all about. 
It's never been more evident than today. And in fact, in the last few days, I believe Canada turned a corner on some things. The Supreme Court of Canada brought down a judgment on Trinity Western University, a Christian university out in British Columbia that was wanting to start a law school. Two law societies said they, did, they would never um, uh, license the lawyers that came out of uh, Trinity Western. So they, of course, went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's been being played out in the courts for years now. And the Supreme Court ruled this week in a majority opinion that um, Trinity Western could not start a law school because of the code of ethics they have around sexuality. And so many have written about this now. A guy I went to high school with, uh, Ray Pennings, wrote in the National Post this week, and it's something that we've said here before. That Canada is now really a post-post-Christian society. And by that, we mean that we no longer even live in a pluralistic society where all religions are welcome to be part of the Canadian uh, culture, but really we're in a very secularized country now where religion is not welcome at all in the public sphere. Not at all. And so what we have after the Supreme Court decision is really an environment where the government of Canada, the official culture of Canada, is actually hostile toward our faith. And in light of that, we need to be more prepared than we ever have been to defend the faith that we believe, to be able to answer the questions and the objections that come our way. And so what I want to do is just simply, we're going to close this way. I'm going to provide you with some resources for further study to, to go even deeper into this. And so we have a number of resources that we've prepared. You can shoot a picture of that with your iPhone right now if you want, or uh, we're going to provide this on our social media this week. And there's a lot of resources, and they go from kind of really challenging ones to more simple ones. But Josh McDowell, who I mentioned uh, here, wrote a classic book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, that was written uh, before I was even a believer uh, back in the 70s. All of the resources uh, for his ministry are, are available at the website josh.org, but the book was rewritten by his son and revised. It's 900 pages long. I think if you want to buy the print copy, it's 30 or $40, but you can get it on Kindle for $3.99. It's not the kind of book you read cover to cover. It's the kind of book that, hey, I got a question about this, and then I go to the book and I find that chapter and kind of read through the arguments for that. So that's Josh McDowell. Um, he's a, a legend in the, in the church. Answers in Genesis, we've used some of their curriculum with our grade four or fives in, in Harvest Kids. We're going to come back to that again in the coming years. But really a lot of um, faith and science and, and showing that those are completely compatible, especially around the creation account. And so uh, look at Answers in Genesis, some great resources there. Apologetics Canada, obviously a Canadian-based uh, group, and they hold a conference, um, I think, every other year here in Barrie at Emmanuel Baptist. And that's a, if you're in, into all of this and really deeply into it, that's a great conference to take in. I don't think they're having it this year, but next. Socrates in the City, you might know the name Eric, Met Eric Metaxas. He's written a couple of biographies, one on Bonhoeffer, one on Luther, amazing bi uh, biographies. But he hosts these talks in New York City and uh, they bring together skeptics and people who are wondering, and they tackle these really massive topics. And uh, those videos are available at this website, and they're very stimulating to watch. Timothy Keller is my favorite author to read right now. I've read The Reason for God and given that to a number of unbelievers who have questions about the faith. The follow-up to that is Making Sense of God. It kind of fills in some of the gaps on The Reason for God. Great books. Uh, Keller, though, is the kind of guy so smart. He pastored a church in New York City. He dealt with skeptics every day of the week and addressed their concerns uh, with, with um, 
with great skill and competency. But Ke Keller's the kind of guy you might have to reread a page after you reread re it because he's very, very smart. I feel stupid when I read it. So that's Keller. And then Strobel, in contrast to that, very pop culture approach to it. And if you, The Case for Christ came out, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. It's an awesome book, made into a movie, probably the best Christian movie that's ever been made. I know that's not saying much, but I mean, it's, but it really is a good movie. And you can watch it on um, Netflix, but the book should be read. It's written like a, like a crime novel. Okay, just an excellent book, Case for Faith, Case for Easter, and Case for Miracles I just picked up, and all of those resources are on his website, leestrobel.com. So I want you to have all those resources, use those, because the stakes are very high. Never be afraid to say people to people, I don't know, but I'll find out, and then go find the question and come back. Never be afraid to do that, and then do get back to them, because we can answer the skeptics. We can't answer them. We have great answers. And God can be glorified as we see some of these skeptics come to faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, that's the way we're going to close today. If you have uh, any prayer requests, uh, is, would like somebody to pray with you or any questions about anything you've heard today, we're going to have some leaders up here at the front. I'm going to be at Guest Central, so if you're new to Harvest today, I'd love to meet you and put a coffee card into your hand. You have a great week in the Lord. You are loved.